Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the New Testament, from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, and we will be reading verses 28 through 40. And again, I invite you to turn there and to follow along as I read. Listen carefully now to God's holy and inspired word. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We have said this before, but one of the things we must remember about each of the Gospels is that none of them were able to include everything that Jesus ever said or did. As John explains at the end of his Gospel, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And as a result, each of the gospel writers was selective in what they included, and we gained some understanding of why they included what they did based upon the audience to whom they were primarily writing. When we made our journey through the Gospel of Luke several years ago, we noted that Luke did not relate every trip that Jesus made to Jerusalem during his lifetime, or especially during his ministry. In fact, Luke relates only three of the many times that Jesus went to Jerusalem. The first was 40 days after he was born, when Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem for her purification and to pay the redemption price of five shekels for her firstborn son in accordance with the law that stated that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. 
The second time was when Jesus was 12 years old and he stays behind when the family returns to Nazareth after making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. And when Joseph and Mary finally locate Jesus in the temple after a frantic search, he says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And the third event that Luke relates is what we have before us today. When Jesus returns at Passover once again, but this time he will serve as the sacrificial lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Luke more than likely reduces the number of total episodes because his audience was largely gentilic. We know this because his primary recipient who he addresses in the gospel is someone named Theophilus, a, a Greek name that means friend of God. And we suppose that this personalization would have resonated with any non-Jew who heard this gospel proclaimed. We also know that Luke was a travel companion with the Apostle Paul, who was labeled the Apostle to the Gentiles. And so we should not be surprised that Luke's target audience was largely the same. And if that be true, then most of the people reading his gospel initially would have been unfamiliar with many of the Jewish covenantal practices. And so Luke appears to have restricted his gospel on the number of trips that Jesus makes to Jerusalem to just these three. That being said, there is another significant mention of Jerusalem in Luke's gospel that tie all of these things together. In chapter 9, Luke tells us, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The King James Version puts it this way, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The reason that Jesus was born, the reason the Son of God appeared in Bethlehem at the time that he did, the Father's business that the Son was all about even as a young boy, the entirety of his ministry was reaching its culmination beginning with the passage that is before us today. As Jesus and his entourage drew near to Jerusalem and were entering its easterly suburbs of Bethany and then Bethphage, Jesus instructed two of his disciples to go on ahead. And in the next village, they would find a young colt, one that had never been ridden, tied up. And they were to untie it and bring it to him. And if anyone were to question their intentions, they were merely to say, the Lord has need of it. Now, what are we to make of this little detail that Luke has included in his gospel? It certainly says something to us about Jesus' keen awareness of the magnitude of this moment. Luke does not cite the Old Testament significance of this again because of his largely gentilic readership, but the reason Jesus rides the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem is to fulfill the messianic prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! 
See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Unlike any of Jerusalem's former kings or former conquerors, this sovereign comes in humility. He brings an entirely different attitude and agenda with him. There's no desire to grab power through a bloody coup. There is no desire to slay his oppressors and hang their carcasses outside of the city gates. This one has emptied himself and taken upon himself the form of a servant. This one has declared that he came not to be served, but to serve. But secondly, the fact that Jesus knows what the disciples will find when they enter the village ahead gives evidence of his divine nature in the same way that Jesus saw Nathanael sitting under the fig tree or knew all about the marital life of the woman at the well or foresaw the three-time denial of Peter or the man with a jar upon his head entering a residence that would serve as the site of the Last Supper for Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus knows that God the Father has made provision for an unridden colt to be available to the Son for his final entrance into the city of the great King, as well as the answer the disciples should give to the owners of the foal, should they be asked. But thirdly, it also says something to us of the sovereignty of our Savior. He reigns over all things. The answer Jesus gives to the disciples is essentially a reminder to the current stewards of the full that in reality the full belongs to God. And their willingness to surrender the full to the disciples gives evidence that they understand this. They reflect the mentality that we all should have whenever the Lord has need of whatever is in our hands. This is the Lord's cult. This is the Lord's house. This is the Lord's money. It all belongs to Him. So if you have need of it, Lord, I gladly surrender it to your use. And so seated upon this cult, the people are witnessing a live moving picture of Zechariah 9 as Jesus begins to make His way to Jerusalem The crowd of disciples who were accompanying him begin to sing praises and shout, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a verse taken from Psalm 118 that was, that we read a moment ago that was a part of the liturgy of all Jewish pilgrims who were making their way to the temple of the Lord on every occasion. But on this occasion, they were singing this with a renewed hope. For undoubtedly the majority of them believed that a regime change was in the offing. They were hopeful that the corruption and oppressive practices that were everyday occurrences under Roman rule were about to come to an end. They were hopeful that Jesus would establish Israel as it was under King David and that peace would reign for all of them. Now, there are a couple of things for us to notice here. The passage that immediately precedes this one is a parable that Jesus tells following his encounter with Zacchaeus 
in Jericho. It is the parable of the ten minas, which tells of a nobleman who leaves his servants in charge while he departs, it says, to receive a kingdom. And Luke reports that Jesus tells this parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So even though Jesus has told this parable to dampen the hopes and expectations of the crowd of disciples, they are still primed for what they believe is about to occur. The other thing to notice is that what the crowd is witnessing as Jesus enters Jerusalem is the reversal of how King David fled Jerusalem when his son Absalom revolted and sought to dethrone his father. Second Samuel 15.30 says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. So now, as the son of David, the one whom God declared would reign upon David's throne forever, comes triumphantly to Jerusalem, the crowds are not weeping. But their chants and accolades had messianic overtones which deeply offended the Pharisees. For in their mind, such words bordered on blasphemy. And when Jesus made no move to silence his followers or to correct them, they urged Jesus to rebuke his disciples for characterizing him in this way. And Jesus replied, If these be silent, the very stones will cry out. Now that statement may be the greatest testament to us of Jesus' own assessment of the gravity of the coming days. What God was about to do in the city of Jerusalem was so significant and of such a magnitude that it could not go unannounced. The orchestration of events that was about to unfold had such historic importance that had the disciples been able to contain themselves and to march quietly into Jerusalem, nature itself would have exploded with the news. The very stones and rocks along the pathway would have resonated with the celestial good news that the long-awaited Messiah was passing by. Psalm 98 declares, Let the sea roar and all that fills it the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And the Pharisees are oblivious to what is transpiring here. They give no credence to the possibility that these disciples are proclaiming the truth. The Pharisees have a mental checklist of what the long-awaited Messiah will be like, and Jesus does not fulfill those expectations. So according to them, he must not be the anointed one. But Luke has written his orderly account 
so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. And in that vein, we cannot help but see that Luke brings his gospel a bit full circle here. You'll remember the night in which the Christ child was born. There were shepherds in the fields near Bethlehem keeping watch over their sheep when suddenly a heavenly host appeared before them singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And Luke now tells us that part of the message these disciples were singing and declaring for all the world to hear as they accompanied this grown-up Christ in Jerusalem was peace in heaven and glory in the highest. His birth announcement was one of peace. And so now was his obituary also one of peace. The disciples could not have known all that was about to transpire but it did not lessen the truth of what they were declaring. And even as Jesus continued to move steadily towards Calvary, it was all about establishing peace between heaven and earth, between God and humanity. Yet imagine the disappointment that must have befallen these disciples. Imagine how their high hopes must have been dashed as the unthinkable occurred. From the throes of religious ecstasy as they sang of their righteous king coming to the city of God to the mournful chance of a people who have suffered a great and terrible loss, so these followers of Christ rode this emotional roller coaster unaware that God was in the process of bringing about their salvation. And yet, how like us they were. All of us have dreams and aspirations and prayers and expectations of God that are frequently and fortunately dashed. We want God to be something that He is not. We want things from God that we are better off without. We attempt to bargain with God only to discover that He's not into negotiations. We attempt to throw our weight around only to discover that we are flyweights in a super heavyweight division. If only we could trust Him who is able to see beyond the limits of our vision. If only we could open our hearts and minds to the divine possibilities that God is capable of accomplishing we would discover that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think, as we said last week. Now, we began this morning by noting that not everything that Jesus ever did or said is included in the Gospels, but it is also true that not everything about the disciples is included either. I don't know if you've ever noticed how quiet the Gospel writers are concerning Saturday after the death of Christ. It would have been the Sabbath, but there's no mention of the disciples going to temple to worship. We don't have any mention of them sitting around reflecting on what has just transpired, probably because none of them said anything worth remembering. 
None of them gave a pep talk to the others and declared that it was all going to turn out all right because none of them believed that in the moment. Which is why when we next hear about them on Easter morning, they were still behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. All of that changed, however, after the resurrection. Which is why we are without excuse. For we live on this side of the resurrection. We live on this side of the greatest story ever told. We have every reason to believe that God is capable of doing the impossible. We have every reason to trust God who has demonstrated His faithfulness time and time again. And yet so often we walk through life with our heads down, unable to sense the presence of the living Lord as though we are right there with the disciples locked in the upper room out of fear. Blessed is the King should always be the refrain that rings in our minds as we consider Jesus, for there is nothing of which He is incapable Upon his arrival in Jerusalem, Luke tells us that Jesus entered the temple and drove out those who were selling and declared, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is a testament to the blindness of those who came to the temple with regularity for the purpose of having an encounter with God only to ignore the very incarnation of God in the person of Christ. How ironic that those who came to worship were expected to pay for sacrifices intended to cover their sins when the very Lamb of God was standing in their midst, freely choosing to become their atonement. Here is the one of whom Paul wrote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And in cleansing the temple, Jesus is reclaiming His territory. He's reclaiming His rightful place. It was here that He was first dedicated to the Lord to fulfill what was required by the law. It was here that He first confounded the scribes and biblical authorities when He was but 12 years old, engaged in His Father's business in His Father's house. And now, with even more amazing words, he's keeping the people enthralled with his teaching, for he speaks on his own authority rather than appealing to the words of other scholars. Even when he appeals to the words of the Old Testament, he speaks them in such a way as to communicate to all those with ears to hear that he's the author of those words as well. Luke tells us, that the people were hanging on his every word. Let me ask us, is this our posture? Has King Jesus ridden into the temple of our hearts and claimed his rightful place there? And have we turned our attention fully towards him in such a way that what he says and what he commands is our objective in life? This is really the point of all of this. This isn't just a history lesson this morning. This is a moment of decision. 
This isn't just a recounting of a a political coup gone horribly wrong 2,000 years ago. This is the tale of the King of Kings who is sovereign over all things, even death in the grave, and He calls us to stop our revolting behavior and bow before Him in complete surrender. Will we be among those who turn away in disgust because Jesus claims to be Messiah and we have reserved that post for our own? Or will we be among those who bow at the foot of the cross and acknowledge that the King of Kings has done for us what we could not do for ourselves? Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment in prayer today.